Hey, this is Tim from Kalamunda Church of Christ, and today I hope that this podcast blesses you. If you are wanting to know anything more about our beautiful church, why don't you hop online and head to our website at kalamunda.church. They might be well into married life and have kids of their own. Um, it just always touches my heart, that thought, to never stop praying. I guess, I guess that's the prayer of a grandparent, isn't it, as well? Father, we think of those in our midst who struggle with the, the heartache and the pain of seeing uh, kids walk away from faith. And we, we pray for them in Jesus' name that they would come back. to never stop praying for them. And we think of people in our community who don't even know you and their children and their grandchildren. And we get a, when we sing this song and the scriptures that it represent, we get a, a glimpse of your heart for people. Give us that heart. Do whatever it takes to give us that heart. stop praying and loving and searching and reaching because that's what you do it's what you've always done and you'll never stop because that's how good you are as our father so we worship you this morning we ask for strength and for courage to be more like you as we go after those whom you love, that we love. Amen. Wow, I don't know where that came from. Thanks, team. Awesome. I'm a little bit on edge this morning. Is that all right? You know me well enough to know that that's okay. I'm not going to go into any detail, so please don't come and ask. Just be praying for our family. Um, for my wife, Rosemary, she's uh, struggling at the moment emotionally. Uh, there's one, an issue going on with one of our kids. Um, uh, thanks for letting me share that. It'll just help me get on with it. So I, bow, I value your prayer. I love that analogy of the car. <laughs> How's that for changing tact? I don't want to add to it, but I'm a pictorial person. And as you're speaking about it, I'm going, oh my goodness, we could go in so many different directions with that. I drive a truck <laughs> for a living. It's a 26 ton tilt tray. It's got a pretty powerful engine because I've got to pull heavy things and a big winch and blah, 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 blah. And um, <laughs> if I was left on my own to fuel that, I'd be in big trouble because every time I go to the fuel bowser, it's $500. 
Imagine having a big, big truck. It's like, sometimes I go to the fuel badger at the truck stop and there's like $1,200 on the thing. I'm going, I'm glad that wasn't me. But you know, I also drive a little car, so it's all right. A little car because it's economical. And I can actually go two whole weeks between fuel, but I have to fill up every second Tuesday, which is when I get paid. And I fill it up and that's fine. And I can manage that because it's a little amount. But imagine if I had to fill my truck two or three times a week, had $500 a go. I, can't, I couldn't do it. So it gives you an appreciation for what a tough business truck driving is. But do you know what I've got that's really helpful? And this is the pit, sorry, this is the picture that came into my mind. I've got a fuel card that the company gives me. It's, it's unlimited. And it just struck me that being a part of a vibrant faith community is like having a fuel card. Because in and of myself, I could not fuel my truck. I do not have the capacity to fuel my truck. But I work for a company that has an unlimited fuel card. <laughs> I can fill it any time I want. Because I'm a part of a company that has that. And, I, and so do you see where I'm going with this? I'm very pictorial. When we're part of a faith community, it's like having a fuel card. So when you might struggle on your own, you've got people around you who can help. And you've got the Holy Spirit, really, who's the account holder. <laughs> and you can fill up as much as you like. I love it. Anyway, I don't, I don't know why I went there, because it just struck me as really interesting. Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name's Matt. Um, I've been here a few times. And most recently, I was here in the month of August. That seems like so long ago. <laughs> and we did uh, a four-week teaching series on a... Was it a Tuesday night? I thought so. And... Um, we looked at the life and ministry of Jesus. Who, who, I was going to say who was here for that. You're gone. who was here for that? Oh, good, because I'm not, I'm, and some of you weren't, which is fine, because I'm going to recap it this morning for you, as I promised to those who are here um, that I would do. So, um, what we did was we spent four weeks looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, and in particular, we tracked what he was doing chronologically through the Gospels. Um, and the reason we did that was because that we were trying to discover if there were any uh, patterns or strategies that he used as a disciple maker that we might actually discover and use for ourselves. And that's where I'm kind of going this morning as I look at this whole idea of, of what was it that Jesus was doing and why he was doing it and what can we take away from it as a church as we, moved, uh, as we move forward. And I guess, how do I summarise a, a whole uh, life and ministry of, of a rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth? Well, I'm going to do it really quickly. Is that all right? I, I won't go into all the details. You just have to take my word for it. If you want to know more, you can talk to someone who, who did the, uh, the, 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 uh, the course or the, the training. Um, but what we discovered was that, basically, if you were to examine the life and, of, life and ministry of Jesus, you could kind of split what he did into five distinct phases or stages. And we spent some time looking at each of those. In the first session, we talked about this idea that when Jesus arrived and commenced his ministry, he didn't step into a vacuum. Like, he didn't just go, here I am, let's start. We discovered that Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his ministry, which means that he's had 30 years of life preparation before stepping into the context of him doing ministry. Does that make sense? So it wasn't into a vacuum. Into a vacuum. He was a, a Jewish man brought up in Jewish culture in the Middle East at a certain point in history. He, he had a trade. Um, he, he knew people. He had family. He, he'd been to weddings and funerals. He'd done life for 30 years. So when he began his ministry, he didn't step into a vacuum. There's a whole culture and background that comes with him. That makes sense, right? 
There's a whole culture and background that comes with him. And so we called that phase the preparation phase. God was preparing his son in an earthly sense to be ready for the ministry that was about to commence. That ministry started at a specific point in time when Jesus was 30 years old roughly when he was baptised by his cousin John in the Jordan River. The second week we looked at uh, the next phase of Jesus' ministry. It's a phase which we call the ministry foundation phase. And interestingly, for someone who was in public ministry for three, three and a half years, this phase went for somewhere between 18 and 21 months. So probably nearly or more than half of his ministry time was in this second stage, ministry foundations. And we discover that what Jesus did in, in that phase, maybe I should ask someone who was here if they can remember what was the main key thing that he was doing in that time. Does anyone want to call it out? Awesome. I feel, I feel accomplished. <laughs> Intentional relationship building. Jesus spent more than half of his ministry time building relationships. He was doing some teaching and some miracles and some healing, but actually not a lot. He spent most of his time building intentional relationships. He'd called the, he'd, he'd met the fishermen, some of John the Baptist's disciples had started following Jesus. There was people starting to follow him, take interest in what he was doing and what he was saying. But he hasn't called the four fishermen yet officially. So it's very interesting that he spends so much time building intentional relationships. A ministry foundation that would allow him to actually build what would become, ultimately, the church. In the third week, we looked at phases three and four because they go together, the ministry training phase and the expanded outreach phase. And this actually was a period of time that only went for somewhere between maybe six and nine months. It wasn't very long at all, but an awful lot happened in that, in that six or nine months. We find Jesus beginning to focus his attention on, on training those who are following him. That phase more or less commences when he calls the four fishermen to follow him. And he takes that small group on a journey of learning and he starts to gather, that, gather others around him, uh, Matthew and so on. But it lasts less than a year. But it has significant impact on the lives of those who are around him. And word about Jesus is spreading like wildfire. When you look at the passages of scripture in, in this particular phase, you see statements like uh, there were large crowds coming to him from all different directions and people were amazed by what he was doing and so on. And the word about him is spreading like wildfire and people are coming from all over the different regions to see Jesus. They're gravitating towards him. And so that's why we say there's an expanded outreach. There's something different about this teacher. There's something not like the others in this man from Nazareth. Let's go and see. We're intrigued by what he's doing. He teaches with authority. He heals people. He's starting to challenge the organised religious leadership or the Pharisees and the Sadducees against what they're doing and how they're not doing what they ought to be. And so it's piquing people's interests it's actually a very interesting passage in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea and to, and to the east of the Jordan River, even from as far north as, as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide and vast numbers of people came to see him. Remember, we tried to map that out in our head. We're talking about an area from 
to say Capel in the south or Bustleton in the south to Lancelin in the north and then out to Northam. Can you, can you visualise that? That's the area of influence that Jesus is walking and moving in. And people are coming from all of those areas, all of those outlying areas to wherever he is because there's something about this guy. There's something about what he's doing and saying that intrigues us. This ingathering of people signalled for Jesus that it was now time, uh, under the guidance of his father, of course, to launch into the next phase of his ministry. Leadership multiplication and movement expansion. This is where kind of most of the gospel happens, actually. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and especially John, most of what's written in the gospels, the words that we actually have focus on this stage. In this particular phase, Jesus really ramps up his leadership and his teaching and his training. It's at the beginning of this stage that he calls the 12 apostles and sets them apart and commissions them to start intentionally doing what it was that he himself had come to do. And even in this last stage, we find that there are four key things that Jesus focuses on. He focuses on, um, uh, well, I've called it an apprenticeship stage. He kind of brings these people in really close to himself and he begins to train and teach and release. And the main objective of the apprenticeship stage is something like um, he appoints the 12 leaders and calls them to a new level of being with him. It's about connection. He calls them to a new level of being with him, learning from him. This is Discipleship 101, intense the second part of what he does in this phase is called the training stage. And the main objective of what, I'm really recapping it here, the main objective of what Jesus was doing in this, in this passage, a lot of teaching, a lot of miracles were going on. Jesus actually sends the 12 out to preach and he continuously trains them as they do that in all aspects of what it means to be a leader and a shepherd. So you can see he's gone from just having apprentices to having apprentices that are actually doing stuff and he's guiding them and shepherding them and teaching them as they go. Then he moves into the third stage, which is the leadership delegation stage. These are just kind of fancy words that put, I think, a framework around what Jesus is actually doing. Kind of around the time of the Last Supper, Jesus teaching on the vine, the promise of the Holy Spirit, kind of that section of the scripture. And the main objective here is that Jesus is now commissioning the, those who are following him. He's commissioning them. He's giving them a, a specific task. He's commissioning the 12 in particular to carry on with his ministry after he's gone because he's now started talking about the fact that he's about to depart from them. And of course, they're going, what do you mean? You know, they still don't quite get it, but he's preparing them. There's rapid growth in the Jerusalem church. Lots of people are, are becoming to believe that this is actually the Messiah. At the end of this phase, we find the narrative of his crucifixion and resurrection. And of course, the church just begins to grow even more at that point. There's momentum. There's attention. People are starting to take notice. The Romans are starting to take notice now, let alone the Jewish religious leaders. So you can see that it's starting to really escalate. And then, of course, at the end of this phase, we have what's called the movement multiplication stage. And here in the story, we're getting into the book of Acts, which is kind of the continuation of what happened after Jesus ascended. 
the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, the, the apostles taking on the mantle of, of, of being leaders and, and rabbis in one sense in their own terms, teaching and healing people and seeing miracles take place, all because the Holy Spirit now indwells them. And the main objective here, of course, is that the 12 apostles are actually empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out the objective of spreading the gospel message to the whole world. It's a rapid multiplication, actually, that takes place uh, right through to the beginning of Acts chapter 8 when we read that the church in Jerusalem is actually persecuted and, and then is scattered into all the regions around in the Roman Empire. You might think, well, that's terrible. You know, it started so well, it was going so strong. People were coming to faith in the Messiah. They were seeing uh, that the, the, the corrupt religious systems weren't working, they weren't effective, that God had fulfilled his promise given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years previously through the prophets. It's, it's happening now, we're a part of it, and then it all just gets split apart. And you'll think, what? What a disaster. But it's not actually a disaster it's perfect timing because it's through that horrendous mechanism that the, that the seeds of the gospel are spread into all the known world because at the time the Roman Empire was the known world right up into, the, into England and Scotland right up into the Germanic, into Germany and uh, you know, even to the edges of Russia all the way down into the middle of Africa right out east to India Like little diamonds thrown. That's what happened. And where those persecuted believers went, the gospel went. And that might sound really strange to even say, but that was part of the master plan. That a persecuted church who lived and walked in faith would carry the gospel of hope and life into the furthest reaches of the known world. And that's the church. We are a direct result of that process, one way or another, through a lot of blood, sweat and tears. So when you step back and look at the Gospels and you track the movements and the teachings and the, the strategic way that Jesus went about what he, what he did, you can see, I think, very clearly that there was a, there was a plan. There was a strategic plan that God had to reach the world. This is God on mission. And this morning I want to have a little, little look at that idea. And we've already been talking about it in roundabout ways this morning through some of the things that various people have said and shared. Because I want to ask the question, what does it look like for us to actually join that? Intentionally join that? Because that's what we're called to do. That's what it means to be the church. At the heart of Je that was my introduction, thanks. At the heart of Jesus' intentional process with his disciples is this, this cultivation of the sense of sentness. Is that actually a word? It is now. Sentness. I'm going to use that word a fair bit today. You see, Jesus himself operated out of a profound sense that the Father had sent him into the world. Everything he did, everything he said, every person he met, every relationship that he formed, everything he did operate, he was doing out of a sense of his sentness. In John 6, 38, we read Jesus' own words, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who 
sent me. This is God on mission. Or if you're into Latin, missio Dei. Jesus approached every circumstance, every person, with a sense that his father had sent him into that situation for a reason. But there's more to it than that. Because as he did that, he also intentionally worked to develop a similar mindset in those who were following him. And that includes us. Later, he would actually give them the title Apostle, which literally means sent one in Luke 6.13. And he told them on a number of occasions that they were being sent into the world by him just as he was sent into the world by his father. In fact, in John's Gospel alone, there are over 40 references, 46 I think from memory, in, in John's Gospel that focus on this idea of sentness. It's a major, major theme in the Gospel of John. And the disciples, as a direct result of spending time with Jesus, learned to approach life with this same sense of sentness. They learned to live what we might call a missional lifestyle, a missional way of being, a missional framework, if you can put it that way. So here's my question for today as we kind of bring this whole series to a close. Um, I, I promised the, the crew that were here on Tuesday nights that I would do that next time I spoke here. So this is what we're doing. We kind of bring it all together. So hopefully for those who weren't there, that's, that little kind of intro will help bring you up to speed. But the question I want to ask is, is as, as we look forward to what God might want to do in and through you as a people in Kalamunda at this church, the, the question goes something like this. What would it look like, actually, if every person who was connected to this church saw themselves as a sent one? What would it look like if every person, every person, regardless of age or standing or how long you've been a believer of Jesus or not, what if every person in this church actually saw themselves as a sent one? How might that change how this church operates? And, and not just this church, but the church, actually, for that matter, because we're not an island here, right? We're part of a bigger thing that God is doing. Praise his name. Let me clarify what I mean by sent. It means 100% sent. Does that make sense? Everyone. 100% sent. Let's explore that. It means everyone living missional lives. It means everyone engaged in God's mission in the world. Imagine what might happen in this community if that were to be the case. And I know it already is the case for many of you, but imagine if it was everyone. We talked, on the, I think, on the last Tuesday night that I was here about the, you know, the rules of multiplication. We know how when you multiply things, they just grow exponentially. It's very exciting if you're into maths. I'm not. But imagine what it might look like if every uh, person here saw themselves as a participant in God's mission, in their street, in their community, in this country, perhaps even somewhere around the world. It really doesn't matter where. But imagine what it might look like if the discipleship process at this church, at Kalamunda, had, had its, has its primary goal. And I'm not saying it hasn't, but just dream a little. What if your primary goal was to see 100% of the people sent 
as disciple makers because that's what we're called to be. Discipleship doesn't start when you become a Christian, by the way. I just We talked about this hierarchy of whatever, well, I can't remember what it's called. There's something like 13 or something, there's 13 steps on the journey to becoming a believer before you actually become a believer. And, and way back down here where it all starts, it starts with relationship and connection. Why do you think Jesus spent most of his ministry doing that? Because he just felt like it? No, because it's important, it's how humans work. He spent you know, nearly two years building relationships, connecting with people, knowing that it was a long and slow, for some people, a long and slow and gradual process till they got to the point where they believed. And then it just goes up exponentially again in the other direction. 100% of the people being disciple makers. Imagine what that would look like. Oh, let me just help you dream a little. Because this is what I think would happen. And I only say this because I've seen it happen when you look through the books of history and when you look at movements of, 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 of faith movements that see rapid uh, gospel expansion, this is always the case. The number of people who would become new converts would just explode. You wouldn't, you'd have a baptism service every week. You might think, oh, that's just really um, idealistic. Really? That excites me, the possibility. You'd need a bigger church. I'm glad you're planning on renovating, but you might not be enough. You might need to plant new churches. Allow the Spirit of God to excite you about this idea. 100% sent. So let's get real. How do we make that happen? What, what can we go, where can we go in the Scriptures? Who can we look at? What can we discern from the teaching that we have in this book that might help us to kind of... Um, map out a plan for that. I'm not a big fan of 10 steps to this or, or five keys to that. Like, I, I get it. I'm not a huge fan of it. But, you know, as I've studied and looked at the strategic uh, life and ministry of Jesus, um, and, and also Paul for that matter, because he continues the work into the, into the churches that are spread all over the place because of persecution, there are a number of things that jump out of, of that narrative which I think would be helpful for us to examine this morning because they seem to be key points that help supercharge and, and fuel, <laughs> to use that analogy, to fuel the momentum of discipleship making, or disciple making. And there are probably more, these are just the ones that stand out to me and, you know, maybe another conversation at another time. But these are the five things that I see Jesus doing and I also see Paul doing it and I see it as a pattern in the, in the New Testament. Firstly, if everyone, if, if 100% of the people are going to be seen as, see themselves as sent ones, then every person needs to have a kingdom vision. That's the first and probably the most primary thing, a kingdom vision. I hope you're not voting on changing your vision and purpose statement in a couple of minutes because actually I'm going to reference them because they're really good, I think. Because here at Calamundi, you already have a great kingdom vision. To grow a vibrant and energetic contemporary church in the hills, that's here, right? That welcomes all generations to freely worship together to deliver solid biblical teaching, to love God and to have a heart for missions in our local community. It's pretty good. It's biblical. I like it. Not that it's up to me. <laughs> Grab hold of the truths in that. that. That statement was developed for a reason. It has a purpose. Let it guide you because it comes from Scripture. 
But it's actually your purpose statement that I really love. And I think that it captures the heart of what we're talking about here. The purpose of this church is to see God's kingdom break into our world. It's not just your purpose statement. Do you know who else that statement belongs to? God. Because that's his heart. That's why he sent his son. I've come to do the will of my father. One of the first things that Jesus starts preaching about is, is his father's kingdom. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. It's near. You can just reach out and grab it. It's right there. Become kingdom people. We did the Beatitude series here, didn't we? I've lost track of where we were doing Beatitude series all over the place. That's what that's talking about. A kingdom vision. God's kingdom breaking into our world. Both of these ideas, your, your vision statement and your purpose statement, have their origins in the greatest vision that there is. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. You're familiar with it, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. But you know, the key to understanding what the Great Commission is really about uh, um, is to know what the command there is. There are four verbs, there's probably more, but there are four, we're getting into English now. We did mass before, now it's English. But there are four verbs in that statement in particular. Three of them are, are proper verbs. One is a command. The verbs, which is a doing word, you remember that from school, right? Yeah. All the students should have gone, yes. But the verbs are go, baptise and teach. They're the doing words. They're the things you ought to be doing. Go, baptise and teach. The command is make disciples. Isn't that interesting? So when you kind of unpack all that and put it into a paraphrase, which I find really helpful, this is what the Great Commission is actually saying to us. As you are going about your day-to-day -day life, make disciples. Baptise them and teach them to live as I taught you. It's actually not that hard. <laughs> and yet it's terrifying. As you're going, as you go about your day-to-day -day life, in your business life, in your home life, in your school life, in, in life in your community, the things that you do in the church, outside of the church, as you're doing all of that, make disciples. Now, some of those disciples are going to be a long way from being believers, but start the process. Start talking to them about Jesus. Start loving them. Start meeting their needs. Start bringing them up that scale to the place where they'll accept Jesus. When in everything that you do, make disciples. And when the time's right, baptise them. And, and continue to teach them everything that I commanded you. That's the discipleship process, kind of boiled down into a simple statement. This is Jesus' kingdom vision, by the way. It's a vision he received from his father, and it's a vision that he passed on to his church. That's us. In order to be a truly missional church, every follower of Jesus must come to see themselves as a sent one. Sent by God into the world as agents of restoration. 
Having a kingdom vision means growing in your understanding of uh, God's big picture and learning to see where you fit into that kind of narrative, where you understand and learn what he's doing and how he's doing it and then letting that influence every aspect of your day-to-day life. It's totally immersive being a disciple maker, totally immersive. It speaks into every aspect of who you are and what you do as a human and as a member of this community. So we need a kingdom vision. The second thing that we need for 100% sentness is community. And we kind of touched on that already a little bit. You need community. It's got to be done as a team. We kind of know that. We've had a lot of teaching on that. So I'll just touch on this really briefly. But I really, I really believe that without a supportive and encouraging community around you, it's unlikely that you'll actually ever fulfill your kingdom vision. Because it's really hard on your own. It doesn't mean you can't do it on your own. I'm not saying that, but it's actually really hard when you're on your own. Uh, There's some wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes which really speaks into this. And just interesting, on the drive here this morning, this verse was on the uh, the radio. Um, It's better to have a partner than to go... What is that Ecclesiastes for? It's better to have a partner than to go it alone. Share the work. And if one falls down, another helps. It's about teamwork. It's about doing it together as a family. How do you define team? Well, team really is two or more people coming together to achieve a common objective or a common goal. In this case, it's a kingdom vision. And as a church, uh, you all share a, a kingdom vision. We've already looked at that. And various ministries within this church will have their own kind of focus on the kingdom vision. So the youth ministry might have a slightly sharper focus. It's still the same vision as the church, but it's specific. Does that make sense? Same with a seniors ministry or a ministry to mums in the community or whatever the, or worship, whatever the ministry is. It's the same kingdom focus, but with, with a point to it. And then you can even refine it even more that as families or as individuals, you might have a specific kingdom vision. So as parents, your vision will be for a, uh, that your family would, would uh, honour Jesus and that your children would learn to love him and grow up into faith and be responsible human beings. That would be nice as well. But, you know, so you can get very specific. As an individual, you might have, uh, you might kind of narrow that kingdom vision down to how you run your business or how you treat employees or how you treat your boss, whatever it is how, in your study. So it's, it can be both broad and narrow, and, that, and it's all of those things. But you need a team. You need a team. Kingdom vision, team, and a plan. You need a plan. You know the old saying that if you aim aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. (laughs) That's true. Passion and tenacity will only get you so far. We spoke, you spoke about burnout, like being low. And this is not true for everyone, but it often is the case that some, when we get to that point, it's probably because we've been running on our own fuel and we've drained the tank. Passion and tenacity are fantastic, but on their own, they're not going to get you there. You need a plan. If you're going to fulfill the vision God has given you, you're going to have to take, you're going to have to make and take some strategic and intentional steps to achieve that plan. You might think, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just led by the Holy Spirit, we'll just wing it. I'd love to say that's what Jesus did. I actually don't think he just winged it. When you really step back and study how he operated, sure, he was able in the moment just to kind of address the issue as it happened, but he already had in his mind worked out what he was going to do in that situation. 
I'm, I'm sure of it. He didn't just happen across people and go, oh, what am I going to do now? I know I'll heal them. He knew that's what he was going to do. Does that, does that make sense? He, he kind of thought through the plan, even though he didn't know the specifics. He knew that when a certain situation arrived, that's how he was going to deal with it. He knew that because he was in constant contact with the plan maker, who was his father. And that's, that's how he operated. It was strategic and intentional. We talked about his plan, we covered it in the four weeks um, and I just kind of elaborated on it then a little bit kind of very, very quickly, I'm sorry. But when we're talking about a plan, I think we're simply talking about your team putting together an intentional strategy that demonstrates God's love through purposeful actions. That's what it is. An intentional strategy that demonstrates God's love through purposeful actions. Now, they're unlimited. What those actions are are unlimited. That's up to you and the circumstance. This was Jesus' plan. I'll just quickly go over it again. He spent about 18 months building relationships with people, particularly the core discipleship team. After calling them to follow them, he spent the next six, six to nine months teaching and training and modelling ministry. Um, then he intentionally selected 12 and spent the next 15 months equipping and preparing them to go out and make disciples. There's nothing ad hoc about that. After his death and resurrection, Jesus empowered the disciples with the Holy Spirit to go out into all the world and the rest, as they say, is history. A simple plan, an intentional plan. Everyone nurtured, everyone equipped, everyone sent this kind of brings us to the fourth thing that I see when you study the life and ministry of Jesus and especially Paul now as we start to examine what he's doing in the churches that have been spread this idea of ongoing equipping there's a bit of a difference between training and equipping and I'm not going to get into the semantics of it but in my mind training is when you learn something new and you practice it to become good at it equipping is when you skill yourself to stay good at it does that make, would that be right, a fair way to analyse that? I, I think so, so we're going to go with that. In ongoing equipping. Because, you know, successful people are always growing and developing. And I don't care what your field of expertise is, whether it's, as, as, uh, whether it's in business or education or whether it's in parenting or uh, in finances or in uh, whatever it is that you do, ongoing equipping is important. Effective organisations are always adapting. Championship teams are always seeking to improve the gameplay. Ongoing equipment is anything you need in order to help you fulfil your kingdom vision. Does that make sense? Anything that you need. Further education, skills, tools, training and resources, more people, all these things will help you in your journey as you walk with the Lord and seek to serve his kingdom agenda in this community. But don't miss the most important equipping tool of, the, of them all. And it stands above the rest by a long way. The Holy Spirit. Because in this process... It's the coming of the Holy Spirit which really ignites the discipleship and the disciple-making movement. And when we look carefully at Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we see when you look at it wrapped around the Great Commission is a most wonderful set of promises. They're kind of the same promise. It's like bookends, if you like, 
around the Great Commission. I don't know if you want to get your Bible out and have a look, Matthew 28. Um, and we'll, we'll go back one verse to verse 18. Um, a beautiful promise of Christ's active manifest presence in this process. Think, think about that. Verse 18. All, this is Jesus speaking. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just dwell on that statement for a moment. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus, the one through whom everything was made and has sustained, you know, the whole universe, blah, 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 nothing, nothing major. All authority has been given to me. So what's he been given? Thank you. He's been given all authority. It's been given to him, which implies that it came from somewhere, right? Where has it come from? His father, God. The big cheese. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. So I don't think there's anything outside of that realm, right? Unless I'm missing something. All authority has, has been given to me. Therefore, because that's true, therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything that I commanded you. Wow. Does that blow your mind? This is our commission. God has given it to his Son to give to you. And he has the authority to give it. But look how the Great Commission finishes in verse 20. And surely I am with you always. Even to the very end of the age. Has the age ended yet? Are we still present and functioning and walking around on the planet Earth as humans? The age is still happening. We still have this given authority that Jesus has given us that's come from his Father to go and make disciples all around the world. And his promise is that he is with us always, right till the very end, and he's with us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. That's the promise. I love that promise because it echoes the heart of God, God the missionary who himself sent his son to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. You can see the connection, right? God's intentional plan was to send his son, Jesus. Jesus' intentional plan was to send us, his disciples, and all the way through, God himself is with us in the process. That's his mission. That's the work that he's doing so you need a kingdom vision, you need a team, you need a plan, you need ongoing equipping. And uh, this one kind of blends in with the one, kind of, they're kind of the same. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the one that equips us, but he also serves, in a sense, as our coach. I don't particularly like the word, but I can't think of a better one. Um, mentor, yeah, maybe, but a coach, because a coach has a very specific role, and we all need coaches in our lives. A coach is someone who will guide you, who will offer wisdom and encourage you to run the race. There's things that, they're all things that the Holy Spirit is sent to do in our, in our lives, by the way, amongst other things. 
a guide, someone who offers wisdom and encourages us to run the race. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, surely coaches are hard to find. But I want to suggest to you that even in a room this size, there's probably a few dozen coaches here, possibly more once you hear what I'm about to say. They're not as hard to find as you might think. You see, anyone who is currently walking the faith journey as a follower of Jesus can become a coach by the very nature of the fact that you're walking the journey. But being a coach isn't a one-way relationship. And Paul gives us a wonderful example of this when he writes his letter to the Romans so that the Um, in the midst of the persecution he's writing to the the church in Rome and listen to what he says and he says this in a couple of other places to other people as well I think maybe Timothy or Titus something along a similar lines he says I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith so that's that whole teamwork thing again but it's coming from the mouth of the coach who includes himself in the team. Do you, see, do you see that? That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. See, what Paul is talking about here is mutual maturity. Sounds like a hedge fund. And although Paul may have been, you know, more spiritually mature, been the more spiritually mature person in the, kind of, in the relationship, all his letters and all his visits to the fledging churches uh, were always about nurturing. They were always about equipping and encouraging the believers. That's what he did. He saw his role as that as a coach. Oh, a spiritual father might be a better term in that sense. Spurring the believers on to do the good works that God had called them to do, to fulfil the kingdom vision. So what do coaches do? What can you do as you help one another fulfil your kingdom vision? You can offer insight, you can offer encouragement and you can motivate. But you do so as a fellow sent one and that's the key. You're in it together. You're not better or greater but you are moving towards spiritual maturity and that's important. You're intentionally working to encourage one another towards spiritual maturity. And, that, and that's how Paul operated. It's how Jesus operated, in a sense. And that, friends, I think is the goal of 100% sent. All the people engaged in disciple-making. That all followers of Jesus would come to see themselves as sent by God to carry on the mission of God. Or, as you put it so wonderfully in your purpose statement, to see God's kingdom break into our world. Let me pray for you, for us. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word and it's just been a real, it's been a real blessing to be able to look at and explore together the whole um, life and ministry of Jesus and how he went about doing your work, how he saw himself as sent by you, It's also it's challenging but also exciting to see how he passes on that sense of sentness to us as his followers. Lord, give us courage and strength to really 
to talk together, to study your word, to pray with one another, to work out earnestly what that actually looks like and means here at Kalamunda and in this area. We know what you're calling us to do. It's, it's plain as can be in your word. We know it. We know it well. We've even got nice statements which reflect it perfectly for us. But Father, my prayer is that by your spirit, you'd help us to really live it. To not just embrace it, but to be immersed in it. I'm totally captivated by the idea that you send us to continue the work that you sent your son to do. And that as people who are salt and light in our community, peacemakers, bringers of hope, storytellers who can who can not only share our own story of hope and salvation, but the greater meta-narrative of, of you loving people and longing for a, a re-relationship with them. Help guard our hearts from thinking that we can do your work because it will make us look good or your church look good. Help us to see that this is what you actually want to do and you want to, and you choose to do it and you want to do it through us. That's humbling. That's also really empowering because you promise that you'll be with us, that you have all authority in heaven and on earth and that you give us that authority and that you are with us right to the very end so that we might run this race and not walk back and just live in our sentness.